Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep prehistoric tales: The Cave of Discord by Charles Gleig, or Gleig. I don't know how to say his name, but really, I, I'm calling the story "The Cave of Discord." The reason I call it Prehistoric Tales is because it's the first of three stories called Prehistoric Tales. Um, but they're each standalone stories, although they do build upon each other. Um, these were all first published in the Windsor Magazine. This one, this story is from March 1906. Uh, the second one is from April, and the third is from May. And um, I read all three in anticipation of this. Um, and I also read a lot about uh, Gleig and a little bit of his other uh, writings. Um, he, wrote, he wrote novels um, as well as um, nonfiction. And uh, I found his writing to be consistently funny. <laughs> like um, in the same humor, even in like uh, Navy, uh, how Canada should modernize its Navy and stuff like that. It's very silly that uh, he can use that same sort of um, humor um, and, I don't know, sensitivity. Um, I'm making it sound like he's um, he's a gentle soul, and this story is not gentle at all. <laughs> it's gently done, though. Um, hmm. That's an interesting uh, distinction. Uh, yeah. Did you uh, – you'd not heard of this guy before, right? I had not, although I give his name the German pronunciation. I call it Gleig, not Gleig. Gleig. Yeah, no. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know how to pronounce it, but because this is a caveman story or <laughs> as what I call it, a, uh, a prehistorical romance. I think, I think I read that in a book years and years and years ago, and it's really stuck with me. Something that H.G. Wells pioneered, Jack London did, a lot of people were doing right in this period. Um, uh, w in fact, we did one very recently um, uh, that's quite quite different in tone. Um, uh, this one's actually probably a slightly more historically accurate, and yet it doesn't try to be so at all. Um, so I'm delighted by it, and I encourage everybody to go to read it, especially um, uh, the PDF version that I put up. I don't know if there are actually any other versions out there, because the illustration in it, in it uh, and in the subsequent stories are just wonderful. <laughs> um, they are, uh, really capture the tone of the story, and uh, they give everything a kind of a, a humorous gloss that maybe... I don't know. If you're really dense, you would miss. You know, uh, interesting. The uh, the drawing style of the illustrations, in my view, accords exactly with what you said. But um, the what's actually shown does not accord with the story. Uh, there's some differences. Um, well, one of the key differences is that much is made of the question of nudity. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's important because I think there's some uh, allusion going on here to w another story in which nudity is important. Uh, and when you look at the uh, first illustration that shows us uh, the people coming toward what is called a whale feast, um, the only obviously fully nude person that you can see is a child. Mm -hmm. The adults are wearing animal skins, and that 
is explicitly said not to be the case um, in this story, except for the gorgeous, beautiful uh, Zug. <laughs> yeah. They're, they actually um, are in the process of uh, greasing themselves up, too. Uh, would you care to read the opening and then uh, maybe explain uh, the rest of the plot to us? <laughs> sure. Thank you. It's, it's fun. About the year 10,000 B.C., these prehistoric legends can seldom be uh, dated precisely, a great whale feast was in progress on the southern shore of the Bristol Channel. In those times, the channel was much narrower than now, and whales quite frequently tantalized by their inaccessible gambols, the cave dwellers on its rocky shores. The coracle was not yet invented, though even in coracles one cannot greatly enjoy the pursuit of whales. The sea monster upon which the Sucks tribe was feasting had been washed ashore some days previously during a severe gale. The carcass was still moderately fresh when a bountiful providence thus favored the tribe with free meals and a supply of oil that promised cheap lubrication for a month. The tribe had no large vessels in which the oil could be stored, but every man could rub himself from head to heel with lumps of the odoriferous blubber, whilst the married men also anointed their favorite wives and carried away fragments of meat for their children. The sun was setting over what we now call the Welsh Hills as a young man and a maiden clambered out of the stinking carcass laden with meat and blubber. And that gets us into a story about the uh, relationship between this young man and maiden. Um, they've obviously been uh, in blubbered together. Yeah. Uh, they come out. She slips. He saves her. Yeah, it's a meat cute. <laughs> I mean, not really, but it's our meat cute for them. Yes, it is, except in this case, meat is spelled two ways. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, but it turns out, as you read the story, um, you find out that that the, the man, Ugg, um, wants to marry um, uh, Sug, Zug, um, the woman, or wants to marriage is not what it is today, uh, then, when we're told that explicitly, um, that he wants her, um, but of course he has to buy her from her father. Mm-hmm. And bit by bit, we get pieces of knowledge about this uh, tribal life. Uh, they uh, didn't talk a whole lot. The marriage didn't mean a lot. It turns out that um, Zug is the 20th daughter mm -hmm. of uh, the tribal leader, who is, in fact, Sucks. S-U-X, mm -hmm. but she is coveted by a guy named Fug. So Ugg, Fug, and Zug <laughs> form a, a romantic, if that's the right word, triangle. It turns out that uh, Sucks won't let uh, Ugg marry or even buy Zug because Sucks wants to live in this really terrific cave <laughs> that uh, of which... Ugg is, as it said, the proprietor. And a lot of what happens in this story has to do with giving us a satiric view of landlord mm -hmm. and tenant relations, which are just being invented now. <laughs> um, and there's a lot of satire against uh, particularly landlords. However, 
renters come in for their due as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the fact is that Sucks wants his daughter to marry Fug because Fug has managed to get a lease on Ugg's cave, which is considered the best cave of all. It's so dry. It's, hot. it's dry. <laughs> it's five feet above high water mark. It gets to look out over what we now call the Bristol Channel. It's 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 lovely. It's just a terrific cave. Now, he promised in this this uh, contract that he would pay six rain sorry twelve reindeer um, per year. Now, the state of the law not being as well developed <laughs> then as it is now, and that's sort of the, the language that's mm-hmm. used in the story, um, what Fug does uh, when there is happens about two moons after the contract is uh, agreed upon, there's a big bunch of reindeer coming by. By the way, uh, reindeer don't at all come to that part of the world now, but since we're told that this is 10,000 B.C., more or less, that would actually put it at the tail end of the last ice age. Mm-hmm. And maybe reindeer did come then. I don't know. Anyway, Zug, a fug, goes out and kills 12 reindeer. Would you mind if I read that section? Because it's so Please. good. Yeah, this is hilarious. Uh, so this is on page 518, starting very near the top. The agreement made in the presence of Old Sucks and the other chiefs of the tribe had been somewhat loosely worded. Six reindeer yearly was the stipulated rent. But Sorry. Uh, it's no no worries. But Ugg had carelessly assumed that Fug would pay in, pay by installments. Subject to the payment of his rent, Fug was entitled to occupy the cave indefinitely. For this clause he had contended with a persistence that had rather amused Ugg until he ascertained Fug's reason for making the condition. Fug had barely been in residence a couple of moons when a large herd of rent <laughs> chanced <laughs> to visit. So great, a large herd of rent chanced to visit the neighborhood, and scores of them were bagged by the tribe. Hitherto, reindeer had been scarce, and Ugg had reckoned upon a glut of the dainty. In oh, had not reckoned upon reckoned upon the glut of the dainty. In the course of ten days, Fug killed and delivered the whole of his first year's rent. Ugg objected, and pending the decision of the chiefs, four out of the six reindeer went bad at the entrance of Ugg's temporary abode. Fug was an eloquent speaker, and won his case. In those days, you will perceive, the law of the landlord and the tenant had not been evolved, and the rights of property were but dimly understood. The chiefs held that the rent had been awfully tendered, so Ugg lost his suit, and had, moreover, to bury the bad venison himself. The case led to so strained relations between Ugg and his tenant. Several sharp flints <laughs> grazed Fug's head after nightfall, and the leak in the roof perceptibly increased. I wonder how that was achieved. <laughs> Not long yeah. after uh, the memorable glut of re- reindeer, Ugg fell in love in his primitive fashion with Zug, a daughter of old sucks, and offered to buy her. He bid three superb flint hatchets, two scrapers, and a small annual tribute of reindeer being spurred to this liberality by suspicion that Fogg also fancied the smiling maid. I'm just going to skip down a bit, um, and then I'll, I'll finish. It's so fun to read. Um, Your eyes, said Ugg, are as bright to me as the stars. The smile was relatively fresh 10 or 12,000 years ago. The Your- simile. <laughs> yep. Uh, Your breath is as sweet as the flesh of reindeer. 
Your laugh drives away sadness as the sun melts the mist of morning. Um, in subsequent stories, uh, Ugg refers to Zug as my, as my little lake, and uh, their baby ref- uh, is, is referred to by uh, 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 Zug as m- uh, my little blubber. <laughs> <laughs> He's very good at characterization. Yeah, that, it's, it's, it's a lovely passage. So much of this is lovely. It is, uh, I find, it's very well written in many regards, but one did strike me as a little odd. After the passage where it says, you know, he, he, he's wooing her with these, in those days, fresh similes, um, it says, but on the night of the whale feast, and then it proceeds. In other words, the opening passage, the opening scene of the story is actually proleptic. It's something that is out of place in the way the story goes. Um, because the night of the whale feast happens at the beginning of the mm-hmm. story, but it doesn't happen at the beginning of Ugg and Zug's relationship. Right. Uh, so it, it, it sets you back a little bit. But, of course, the whole story is meant to set you back a little bit. Yep. Um, so what happens is that they, they do come to an agreement, but no matter how much, uh, bids, Sucks won't accept his bid. He wants Fug. And when he when Ugg makes this clear to Zug, Zug says, well, it's because my father wants to live in your cave. Well, he can't evict the tenant. Mm-hmm. Now, what can you do? Now, we are told that in a high wind, in a storm, in a gale, um, there is a huge, huge slab of rock that that moves imperceptibly, but it moves enough to let in some water. What, but, but of course, Ugg never mentions this to Fug when he rents it to him because he was smart enough to keep that information to himself. He invented renting after all. <laughs> um, but now he wants him out and he can't get him out. So instead, he waits for an enormous gale makes much sacrifice of blubber and reindeer to the gods, promises his flints and hatchets if need be in the future or the results of his future kills to the gods. And when the wind comes up, he takes a small pine tree and uses it to pry with the help of the wind this this huge teetering rock until eventually he's able to get it to fall down in front of the cave while Fug is inside. He destroys the, destroys the real estate, basically. Basically. Uh, yeah, you can't go in or out of that cave. Um, Fug, therefore, excuse me, sucks, therefore realizes that he's never going to be able to live in that cave, nor is he ever going to be able to have Fug provide anything to him, so he might as well let Ugg marry his daughter, Zug. So they get married, but of course they can't live in that cave. And then at the end of the story, we find that they have been living together. Um, he, Ugg, has foregone rent to Fug. Fug is only uh, kept alive by his family that can just reach one hand into a crevice to keep him fed. He never can go out. He sets himself up as a prophet, we're told. And Ugg and Zug come by and sit and picnic in front of his cave from time to time when the weather is nice. And occasionally, Ugg throws some meat in or blubber into the cave for Fug. (laughs) Um, So the end of the story, I think, wraps up what is a a very interesting satire Mm -hmm. on a lot of obvious things and some not so obvious. 
the not so obvious has to do with the geography. Yep. You want to go for it? Go for it. Well, I I looked it up, and I was I was I was I mean, you you probably are looking at something a little more sophisticated than I was, but you know the it's at the mouth of what river? Um, it's the not Brist- the mouth. Uh, well, it's the Bristol Channel. It's on the southern shore of the Bristol Channel. Right, right. Um, and the the water's brown, and um, so they look. Uh, I don't. I think it's in. Yeah, subsequent story. Oh, yeah, it's mentioned here. Um, the sun was setting over the what we now call the Welsh Hills. And so to the north is uh, Wales. This is the bottom left-hand corner of England. Um, yes. And uh, I didn't look it up, but I... Otherwise known as Southwest. <laughs> yeah, I, I assume that there actually is... Uh, there are caves in the south... Yeah, in the bottom left <laughs> southwest corner of England. Um, but looking north, right... There's a, like a, a peninsula that sticks out. Cornwall, I guess, is what it is. Anyway, no, Corn, Cornwall goes to the west. Down. Yeah, Wales is on the north side of the Bristol Channel. England is on the south side of the Bristol Channel. Mm-hmm. And at one point in the story, uh, we're told that uh, where there's a comparison made between Ugg and the men of Somerset, Somersetshire mm-hmm. nowadays. Somersetshire is actually far toward the east in the Bristol Channel, which it would need to be, because even in the summer, if you were to the west, if you were, say, halfway west on the southern shore of the Bristol Channel, even in summer at that latitude when the sun sets, you would see it set over water, not over the, Wales, the Welsh hills. So this southern, the, the, the place of location has got to be in Somersetshire, which is pretty far up, that is, to the, to the northeast in the Bristol Channel, so that when the sun goes down, you can be looking across the channel mm. and across the hills of Wales. Right. Right. So it turns out, and I, I think that's, that's interesting to me, because um, if he hadn't said that, in fact, when I first read it, before I began to look this up, and I'm not an Englishman, so um, I didn't grow up looking at this map with great detail, with great attention. Uh, but when I did look at the map with great attention, I saw what I just described. Not having looked at that map with great attention growing up, I mean, I knew where Cornwall was, and I knew where Wales was, but I didn't know the exact configuration of the Bristol Channel. I figured that when it said it set over the Welsh hills, that we were in Wales. Mm. But if you work out the geography, we are definitely not in Wales. We are in England. Mm-hmm. And so we have an Englishman writing a satire specifically about Englishmen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. There's another place in which uh, the word irony comes up. It's We're told that Ugg stopped being modern for a while when he was talking to the trapped Fug and told him things that were actually the case. Then later, he reverts to banter. Now, this whole story, with the exception of that one place, in a way, is ironic. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's satiric, ironic. It's making fun of, of male-female relations. Mm-hmm. It's making fun of gender relations. It's making fun of money, landlords, renters, all rituals. Um, and yet at one point when it says he stopped being modern, told him what he really thought, and then Ugg reverted to being ironic, he's also making fun of his own use of satire. Mm-hmm. I think that level of self-awareness is quite delightful so that I urge people who at all like what they 
may believe from us is going on in the story that they they read it with some care mm-hmm. uh, because and, and slowly because it really is lovely. Uh, for instance, at the very end, right, right, we we get a fog. Uh, so, so he expressed the hope that Fug was on good terms with his relatives. This Ugg is saying, we hope they'll feed you. Um, <laughs> lastly, he assured Fug that he would himself be a kind husband to Zug, whom he meant to marry that evening. And as I say, he forewent the rent so that it's only a matter of food that uh, <laughs> Fug needs to survive. And it's so generous of him. You know, well, to it's interesting because he had said when he first found out the problem, he said to uh, – to Zug, well, then I need to kill him. And Zug didn't say, oh, no, that would be wrong. She said, well, if you do that, they're going to ostracize us and we won't be able to survive. Mm-hmm. All right? It's not that it was a bad idea to kill him. It's that it was an impractical one. Mm-hmm. Well, now he could easily have killed him by just requiring the rent. <laughs> which, which, right? Which Fug could never get because he couldn't go hunting, but he doesn't. So that tells us that Ugg really wants something else from Fug. And then after that, you know, he'll marry her that evening. There are five dots across the page, and then we get the end. Legend records that old Socks raised no further obstacles to the union of his daughter with Ugg. He seems to have recognized that a slab of rock two feet thick constituted a valid impediment to the marriage which he had previously sanctioned. Fug, so tradition states, lived rent-free to an advanced age and set up in later life as a kind of prophet. Ugg and Zug often picnicked outside the cave on summer afternoons, and occasionally Zug would throw the recluse a piece of meat. Now, I look at this and I think, a kind of prophet this is, in a way, a satire of prophecy, because if this guy oh, yeah. could have been a prophet, he wouldn't have been trapped in there. <laughs> so what's it telling us? It's telling us that the whole idea of listening to some poor schmagegi telling you what the future is like is yet another foible of human beings. And yep. it tells us that Ugg and Zug are just loving keeping him alive and gloating. They they're live. monsters. They're they're terrible. <laughs> they're terrible yeah. monsters. In in the subsequent stories, it's it's entirely clear that you know the only thing that keeps them from killing people or you know stealing stuff from them is the fear of being ostracized. <laughs> um, they go on a raid uh, to kill some Welshmen, uh, and the only reason they go to Wales is because uh, the um, the women in the next tribe over in. Uh, Bristol or whatever are two uh, in Somerset are too uh, skinny for sucks. Interesting. Interesting. So yeah, it's it, it, it's lovely. It is, and, and it's self-aware. It's so self-aware, but uh, it, it's so surprising that basically when the monsters win the sto- win what they want at the end of the story, we seem to not mind. Because the way it's framed, it is so much like a cartoon that you can't be upset with the people <laughs> at their horrible actions and motivations. I mean, he he literally, you know, he he he's the worst landlord ever <laughs> because he gets paid he gets paid exactly what he's due. Um, he didn't like the way he got paid, um, so he tries to he goes and I I think he he pisses. 
into the hole in the middle of the night. He throws flint stones at the guy's head um, at night so no one will know who did it. And then uh, when when it finds out it's going to hurt his marriage chances, he destroys the guy's home and traps him. He could have killed him for no reason. So the only like morality here is out the window. And of course the ta- the title of the story, the cave of discord. <laughs> right. The the cave is the problem. Right? <laughs> We're told. That's what they're fighting over. But right. I think there's something else that's the problem, Jesse. Yes. Um it, it, since since we agree that this author um Gleig is self-aware, I'd like to propose uh a hypothesis that you're welcome to embrace uh Tutu, poo-poo, or, or attack, whatever. Okay. Um, there's much made of imprecision, right? Um, and in part, that use of imprecision in that very first sentence, about the year 10,000 BC, these prehistoric legends can seldom be dated precisely. Um, how can you date a legend precisely? It's a legend, for goodness sakes. Yep. And 10,000 BC is just sort of a roundish number. So the whole idea of the historicity of legend and the whole idea of dating in prehistory, uh, this way before carpent dating, right, mm-hmm. um, is, is, I think, under slight, slight attack, right? So everything could be imprecise. And yet we have tremendous precision in a number of things, one of which is we see Ugg and Zug. The first thing we see is Ugg and Zug coming out of the whale. Mm-hmm. They emerge from the whale. Right? They are coming out of a cave, if you'll like. Yep, a meat cave. Now we've, we, a meat cave. We have seen someone emerge from a whale. And that's Jonah, who does this because God chooses not, in fact, to kill him, although Jonah is punished for having uh, denied God uh, earlier. And so that's why the Leviathan, the whale, swallows him up. But God lets him come out in three days. Zug does not let Fug come out of his cave ever. So they come out of the whale cave together. We know once we realize halfway through the story that this was a flashback, that they already were lovers. Mm -hmm. So they went into the cave and they canoodled. Mm -hmm. When they come out, they go back to where the tribe lives and we're told that they walked along the shore with the water on their left. Which means, since we have already been able to determine that they're in Somersetshire, they're walking east. The story begins the fir- with the first time that Ugg and Zug know each other's nakedness. And much is made about the fact that everybody is naked, mm. pretty much, except um, Zug is sort of a little modern and wears a little reindeer girdle modestly, right? Mm-hmm. Um They know their nakedness. She's the only woman who apparently cares about knowing her nakedness. And when they come out of the whale, they come out of the cave, they come out of that first meeting, they walk off to the east Mm. like Adam and Eve after they have been, right? So that prophet that Zug sets himself up as, 
uh, Nadzak Fug sets himself up as, that's a reminder of a book full of prophecy mm-hmm. and how people wind up messing up their lives anyway because they conflate sex, money, desire, food, lying, playing games with language, and so on. There is a connection, I think, that, that Gleig allows us between this prehistoric tale and the other prehistoric tales of myth, legend, and religion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The, the, the wonderful lack of morality they have <laughs> in this story <laughs> is so funny. And um, it, uh, we did recently a podcast on The Heart's Awakening by H. Devere Stackpole. This is another prehistorical story. It couldn't be more different in tone. There, the uh, the specifics of the geo- geology and, you know, the animal's extinction, it's all in service of a, a more poignant point about love. This is a very different story, and yet they're doing kind of the same idea. They're reckoning with these new facts about what science is telling about where humans really came from. And what do we do with these facts? Well, if you're Charles Gleig or you're H. Devere Stackpole, you retell the Garden of Eden story. Here, I love the fact that they're climbing out of the whale, and then what do they instantly do? They anoint each other <laughs> with yes, this oil, right? They are kings of the world. The uh, when, the when the way they see the um, the whales, they're um, gambling. <laughs> oh, so so tantalizing just offshore. Um, this um, idea of of being, you know, the uh, shepherds and uh, of the of the earth. Uh, that's all mythology, according to Gleig. You know, this is just, wow, they're really hungry and they don't have refrigeration. <laughs> and they're, right. and so they're, in, what do they do? They immediately start inventing everything. In the next story, uh, somebody invents um, uh, the drum. <laughs> and uh, he sets himself up as a, oh, his name is Mug. <laughs> so the same the, the kind of humor and, um, uh, and the lack of morality just continues. And I think that, um, as you say, Gleig or Gleig is very self-aware. Um, and it just really enlivens the, the, the satire, the skewering, as it were, uh, that he's doing to not just his own story, but to everyone around him who's reading it in the society they're in. Um, delightful. And the fact that he could write two more stories carrying on the lives of Zug and Ugg um, just demonstrates what we know is true every time we read a rich story. Mm-hmm. There's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.